Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel. Today, I have the privilege of being in conversation with one of my favorite contemporary sociologists, Dr. Polami Raichadri. Dr. Raichadri is Assistant Professor of Sociology at McGill University. And in this episode, we will be talking about her new book, Capable Women in Capable States, Negotiating Violence and Rights in India, that was published by Oxford University Press in December 2020. This book thinks through gender-based violence to explain how rights are negotiated in India, and it does so by ethnographically tracing how women interact with the law, not by following legal procedure or abiding by the rules, but by deploying collective threats and doing the work of the state themselves. The book sheds light on how some women attain a precarious form of capability gaining access to resources and independence only if they are willing and able to take on the work themselves. Polami, congratulations on this insightful and important book, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode today. Thank you for having me, and thanks for that lovely intro. Yeah. Um, So before we begin talking about your fantastic book, um, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps um, how you became a sociologist. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> it was uh, like by accident. Um, so uh-huh. <laughs> I think I didn't have a good sense at all about mm-hmm. the differences between disciplines because mm-hmm. I, I was coming from, I mean, I can blame it on my liberal arts education at Swarthmore, but I, I just like was kind of clueless. So, um, I needed to get out of this horrible consulting job I had where I was mm-hmm. miserable. So I was like, okay, I'll just apply to like, I literally applied to history, poli-sci, econ, anthro, and soch. Mm-hmm. And I had never taken a sociology class in my life. Um, so, like, my only requirement was that I got in somewhere and they gave me money. And so, yeah. then, like, <laughs> like, NYU was like, okay, like, come. <laughs> we'll yeah. Five years of money. So, yeah. So, I don't know if that's what you want to hear, but I was like, yes, I'm coming. Um, like, I have no idea who Anthony Giddens is. Like, I literally did not know the name of a sociologist. So, so anyway, I get there. But, like, so I never was committed to the discipline, but um, I'm actually happy I ended up here because I was committed to certain um, issues, you know, like when I was going into academia. And largely they centered on understanding gender inequality um, and understanding like political economy because um, I was just sort of puzzled by the causes and consequences of poverty, um, as well as the specific disadvantages that accrue to women and girls. Um, So I wanted a way to study those questions, um, which I think, you know, sociology gave me um, a space to do that. Uh, in a way that potentially other disciplines would not have, um, especially in a qualitative way, right, through qualitative methods. 
Um, uh, but I think my interest in those issues actually did arise from my, um, my background, which had to do largely with, like, I was born in India, in Kolkata, you know, to like a lower middle class family. So not super privileged, but we were Brahmins, we had land, you know, so certain kinds of advantages. And then we moved to the US and we were literally like, super poor, right? Like we were below the poverty line. Um, and also part of this sort of like class of racialized immigrants in a super white town. So, you know, it was just like, I didn't have the theories or the, um, the like a way of understanding why life got so much worse in so many different ways. Um, and it sparked an interest in these questions about like, you know, like the relationship between India and the U S um, there, the sort of like the consequences of uh, downward social mobility class status, especially for uh, like me and my mother. Um, so, yeah, so that's what eventually led to some of the kinds of questions I study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting uh, story about how you became a sociologist because uh, it's the same with me. I applied very widely, and U Chicago was like, "Hey, do you want to do sociology PhD?" And I was like, "Yeah, great, sounds cool." Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, fine. Sure, I'm coming. <laughs> and Anthony Giddens was actually the only sociologist I knew of. Okay, so. but you were doing better than me. <laughs> so. Yeah, so shifting gears a little bit. Um, so, what's the story of this particular book, and how did this? research project um, unfold? Um, okay, I feel like the, the theme of this podcast is going to be by accident. <laughs> like, <laughs> Professor Rachadri has no idea what she's doing ever. Um, so, yeah, uh, so, again, like, by accident, um, you know, so I, okay, so I got to NYU and I was like, I'm interested in political economy, gender. And at that time, everyone was doing microfinance, right? I'm like, okay, I'll study microfinance. Um, and uh, I got to West Bengal because, you know, that's where I was. I was born in Kolkata. So I knew Bangla. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll just like go there and try to talk to some organizations that are um, organizing self-help groups. Um, and what happened was that in these initial interviews, like people would talk about microfinance for maybe 10 minutes and it, like it was very clear that they themselves were bored by microfinance and that and then eventually the conversation would shift to violence against women like either domestic violence or sexual violence and some people were sort of you know hush hush like oh you know we're we're getting funded to do microfinance but we're actually using some of this money to um you know, like fund a casework team. And, and so after several of these conversations, I was like, okay, A, it seems like people are more interested in this other issue in the, in the field, right? And two, like, why? Like, why are they illicitly channeling money towards these? And so I did a, um, like a 180. Um, and I think it ended up working out really well. Like in the book, I talk about how um, 
like bumbling around and stumbling on things can can actually be a methodological approach uh, for especially for qualitative sociologists, right? Um, like it sounds funny, but I think it's important for it's important for like PhD students to know that hey, you don't always have to know what you're doing. That it's okay to be a bit clueless, and it doesn't like necessarily mean you'll fail, um, right? But that also, um, you know, to go back to like Howard Becker or something, right? Like who highlighted a long time ago that like one of the key strengths of qualitative research is that we are open to data, right? Like we can't protect ourselves from data when we're in the field. Um, And it's this hazard, but it's also an advantage. And so I think like allowing yourself to be open to um, dramatic shifts can actually reveal um, things that people may not realize they should be studying. And so that's what happened in this case. Um, and it worked out, I think, well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you go about collecting data for this book? And um, how did your social location, coupled with your position as a researcher at a U.S. university, sort of shape the the way you collected data for this project? Um, yeah. So because you know, I uh, had to do this 180. Initially, I didn't collect data systematically, right? So I just went wherever people I met told me to go, and I talked to anybody who would talk to me. Um, and this worked out in the long run because uh, I think I became known to a wide range of people, um, started visiting a number of courts, police stations all across the state, and then it wasn't until it was took a several months actually for me to formulate what we like to call a sampling strategy, quote, mm-hmm. quote <laughs> like whatever that is. Um, yeah. <laughs> but at least to realize, right, that I need to um, sort of more concertedly find women of specific social backgrounds, right. That I, that I should not just be studying like, a poor Hindu women or something, right? That I needed an array. Um, it also took me a while to realize that um, I should try to talk to different kinds of organizational actors um, who were located in different organizations and that I should interview law enforcement personnel without anybody else present. So that evolved over time, but the earlier sort of wandering around really helped at that stage because, you know, I could call people and be like, hey, I met you like two months ago, you know, in this other place, like, remember me? And I think that helped me gain access. Um, but I would say that who I am impacted the research in a couple complicated different ways. Um, So, you know, I would say that there are aspects of my identity that I would classify under like privileged advantages or something, right? um, Like the fact that I'm visibly rich compared to many of the people I spend time with. And and like visibly, I mean like my clothes, my phone, my purse, my shoes, right? People would comment on these things, Um, especially women. Um, uh, like the fact that I'm literally a foot taller than everyone, I was saying, it <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a random thing, but it's, it's like a big deal in West Bengal where everyone's like, like, why are you so tall? Like, <laughs> and it's right, it's like in a context where there's malnourishment, it, it just it, it indicates wealth as well, 
the fact that you're tall, right? Um, so that um, the fact that my last name is Brahmin, um, the fact that I am an NRI, and also the fact that I, I went to this like elite university, right? Um, that some people know about. Um, I think all of these things, plus the fact that I'm a woman, that I'm young, um, eased access to certain survivors and certain organizational contexts. Um, uh, so I was not only seen as non-threatening because, you know, I'm a woman and I'm young and like, I was clearly also clueless. So like everyone thought they should explain things to me. So, you know, once again, it's actually, it can be advantageous to like seem like an idiot sometimes because people like to tell you a lot. Um, you know, so that, that was good. Um, and then the fact that I was an NIRI and at NYU, um, I, you know, I'm actually going to talk about some of this in the piece I'm working on for ethnographic marginalia for, for you, um, where, uh, because of like these, clear, visible markers of privilege, um, I myself became a source of like social capital for people I studied, right? So like many of these caseworkers and survivors wanted me to go to the police station with them or to court um, because they thought people would be nicer to them if I was there. Um, so that eased access. Um, and I think it also provided a bit of protection when I was in male-dominated sites. Um, right, like uh, hanging out with politicians or law enforcement. Um, but I know some of those aspects of my identity were also clear disadvantages, um, i.e. my gender, my youth, and my NRI status actually was quite disadvantageous at times. Um, so I think being a young woman, I felt, and I know you have done work with uh, law enforcement as well, but I felt uh, like either sometimes vulnerable, but like I at least felt like I had to be very, very careful about how I conducted myself, right? Um, like who I met, what kinds of information I gave them, what time I met them, um, like, you know, if I had access to like a car so I could like run away right away, <laughs> like, you know, like things like this, but you wouldn't necessarily have to think about if you were somebody else. Um, so yeah, I worried about being sexually harassed and I like, I like worked hard to try and not put myself in situations that were dangerous. Um, I think the interesting thing was like the NIRI, NRI thing was actually uh, disadvantageous with some of the more elite women's organizations and NGOs. Um, so there seemed to be like this like post-colonial suspicion, right? <laughs> Who are you? Um, and and I, I lacked local elite social networks, which I think would have helped me gain access to some of these people. But um, I would say that, you know, to conclude, um, like time really helped with all of these things. Um, just the simple fact that I was there for two years and that I kept going back. Um, uh, so I think like just the time I spent there made people feel like I was committed. Um, and some people explicitly said that. And I also think it made people forget who I actually was. Like they were like, oh, like 
I have no idea like what you're doing here still. And I don't remember <laughs> how you got here, but you've been here for a long time. So I'll yeah. just like, <laughs> you know? so, yeah, yeah. So that, that, um, so all of these like, uh, aspects of my identity sort of, um, became more blurred and, um, less concrete the longer I spent there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, there she is again, you know? Um, but I, I know what you mean. A lot of the times, um, the police officers I spent time with just uh, kept thinking that I was either a journalist. They were like, oh, she's a journalist from New York Times. So that became the story after like six months of me having been there and shown them my, you know, like visiting card and my credentials from the University of Chicago. But yeah, it just took a life on of its own. Totally. totally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for that. That's such, such a candid exploration of your own social positionality and I, I I'm going to keep that um, that height factor in mind for a long time um, <laughs> it's like definitely one of the most unique discussions that I have been privy to <laughs> yeah and also it's like people in like if people are listening to this in New York they would yeah. not understand if they met me right like everyone yeah, like, yeah. Oh, you're quite short like, you're right <laughs> well not in this context that's all relative yeah <laughs> um so you know uh, in the first few pages of the book itself um you walk us through the existing theories around um gender violence in the state that um that argue that state officials selectively award entitlements to what we now know as uh, in quotes good victims right women that mm-hmm. are docile passive chaste and so on Mm-hmm. Um, you then go on to persuasively point out that these theories do not suffice in explaining what you were seeing in your ethnographic observations. So could you tell us a little bit about this theoretical intervention that you're making in the book? Um, how does the Indian case complicate this relationship that we take for granted between the state and its so-called good victims? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this is like this gets at the heart of the book, right? So let me just yeah. back up a little bit. and. Um, talk through what the common sense um, slash not just common sense, but also existing like theoretical understanding is because there's a lot of overlap there. But, you know, I think we see this right in um, like highly publicized court cases um, where both in domestic violence cases and in cases of rape, where we'll see that like judges and juries are asking and deliberating on um, things like, oh, was she wearing tight jeans? Um, And they're deliberating on this for a couple different reasons. Like one is like, oh, she was wearing tight jeans, which means that she actually wanted to have sex, right? And the, the logic there is that they're trying to figure out, like, is this person, is this woman, like, good chaste woman right like like but then they're also oh like if she was wearing tight jeans like nobody could have taken that off um without you know like so there's all these ways in which criminal justice institutions um when they are faced with allegations of gender-based violence what they do is they assess the character of the victim um rather than the like the character of the alleged perpetrator and um, so uh, one way to theorize this is that, okay, A, um, law enforcement personnel actually have a lot of discretion, right, on their hands. Um, they're able to use that discretion 
to choose women who fit uh, whatever is deemed to be an appropriate understanding of femininity, um, which of course excludes, you know, like things like, uh, like whatever, like dressing in a way that's quote unquote provocative or, you know, like dating too many men or things like that. But obviously all of these um, performative aspects are linked to uh, like social background as well. Right. So that, um, women of color, uh, working class women, sex workers, all of these people have a harder time even performing good victimhood, right? So the if I were to boil down existing theories, they combine two elements. Uh, the notion that the state um, is able to protect women when it wants to. And it only protects women who, like it selects which women it wants to protect. Um, Second, that because of this governance model, the way that women's citizenship is structured is through victimhood. So i.e. the way you access rights is by convincing state officials that you are actually a good victim. Um, So I think that's a really compelling theory, right? But um, I just, like, some part of me was like, I don't, think this is how things work in India. <laughs> like, you know, and, and this isn't just like these theories aren't just coming from places like Canada or the UK or the US, right? Like a lot of people who work in India also talk about um about exactly this kind of dynamic when they go into some of these sites where like judges are like, well, but you burned the doll. So like you're not a good wife or something, you know, like what is that about other than they're trying to figure out if you're a good, like a good wife, i.e. a good woman, a good victim, right? Who should actually be given um, the rights that you've been promised. Um, so, but uh, like some part of me was like, but that's not like neither the understanding of the state nor of um, how women access rights uh, actually is what's happening on the ground. And so what I thought that the existing theories might ignore are one, the actual conditions of law enforcement personnel in India, where we definitely see immense amounts of social bias, right? Like they'll just say preposterous things, like when you, like just openly, right? Um, But this bias is combined with massive amounts of incapacity. which means that they're not only like overwhelmed and can't do their jobs, but that they have like a limited monopoly over violence, right? Like we see this in uh, all the time in protests where like, like, you know, like um, police cars are burned, like cops are like pelted with stones. Um, So the incapacity of some of these uh, you know, frontline workers, even courts do get surrounded. So it made me wonder if the selection process that um, existing work sort of assumes is actually happening, right? Like, are they actually selecting who they like, you know, or is something else going on? And the reason I think um, we, like, I had doubts about um 
what they were up to is because of exactly the presence of what Partha Chatterjee calls political society uh, in this context, right? Like the fact that there are actually tons of organizations and um, they are sometimes up to no good and they are threatening and that we know that some women have access to organized resources. Um, so that they're not actually approaching the state like the the pathway towards citizenship for women is not as individuals necessarily. Um, so yeah, so coming out of that, like with those doubts and then seeing what I saw on the ground, um, my suspicions were borne out. And what I found was um, what I call, uh, instead of state protection and victimhood, what I refer to as state incorporation and women's capability. And so what incorporation is, is um, if under a protectionist regime, uh, law enforcement personnel selectively, you know, look for good victims um, and give award them rights in an, uh, in a model uh, like a governance model based on incorporation, what we see is that law enforcement personnel don't choose women um, who are necessarily good victims. They choose women who um, are either able to do their job for them or threaten them in some way because they have organized resources. Um, and But incorporation means that they're still not like actually protecting these women or giving them rights. Like that's not on the table, um, but they are allowing them to either execute the law themselves or to, uh, you know, pursue some sort of shadow claim outside the law's boundaries with limited supervision from limited informal supervision from, from the state. And therefore uh, the pathway towards some semblance of citizenship rights in this context is not victimhood, but being the kind of woman who can actually do all this stuff, um, uh, like cap- capable uh, in quotes. But um, yeah, so that's how I came to the sort of the central uh, theories in the book. Yeah. I mean, when you said uh, burn the dal, I couldn't help but chuckle. Like there's burn the bra and then there's burn the dal and uh, they're both rather <laughs> provocative, <laughs> feminist provocations. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but, but, you know, um, uh, as someone who has uh, done some ethnographic work amongst uh, police officers, uh, albeit in a very urban Indian context, I was very taken by your arguments about the the conditions uh, of the law enforcement agencies and po- political pressures in the job that you just mentioned. But could you Briefly tell us what uh, maybe an example of the kinds of contradictions the street level officers of the state were embedded in. Yeah, yeah. So I would say there are a couple contradictions, right? And in, in play, um, one is like ideologically they are overwhelmingly biased against women, um, against poor people, against Muslims, you name it, right? Like they really do not want to help marginalized people. <laughs> There are notable exceptions. So like not all law enforcement personnel are like this, but like some of them are motivated by an ethic of good work, but most of them are not. Um, And so the ideology leads them to, even when they have resources or the ability to help, it leads them to not want to help, like to do right. 
Um, uh, so that that's one um, sort of uh, direction in which their behavior is um, geared. Um, but second. Uh, are these capacity constraints that I mentioned? Um, and you know, in the book, I detail detail like exactly what kind of institutional context we're dealing with here, and it's it's really overwhelming, right? Like it's like the average. I mean, like eighty percent of India's police force is um, in the constabulary rank, uh, and and they're all men, right? So like the the entire police force, there's eight point two percent is women. Um, so it's all men. So like, it's, it's just a bunch of like young dudes who are kept on duty for like 14 to 16 hours a day. You know, they work like seven days a week. They, there's no chance of promotion. Um, and then every, like, like courts, police protection officers, these are super like politicized posts. Right. So if you like, like, and we know this, right? Because the minute that a new political party like comes to power in a state, they get rid of all the cops and like replace them, right? So, um, so there's a lot of evidence of politicization. Um, so they're overburdened, they're under resourced, they're like scarcely trained, um, poorly compensated, and sometimes just massively overworked. Um, so what this means is that just like the ideology, like the bias pushes them towards not helping people. Um, the capacity constraints also push them towards like not helping people and not doing their job. Um, but they uh, being so incapacitated also means that they're vulnerable. Um, like they're vulnerable physically, they're vulnerable to political pressure. Um, and it means that, you know, when citizens do get together, that they can motivate law enforcement in particular ways that, you know, may not be like to push them towards fully doing their jobs, but at least in a slightly different direction where they are forced to accommodate in some way. Um, And it's that accommodation that actually is incorporation, right? Like incorporation is a negotiated compromise. It's not, it's not the state doing its job, but it's also not the state like completely ignoring women. Um, and so, yeah, so it's these three things together that I think lead to the negotiated compromise of incorporation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. That, that was um, that was amazing and um, really, really interesting. And definitely one of the reasons that the book stands out as uh, as contributing a very unique perspective on this issue. Um, but again, moving away from this discussion, um, in Chapter 3, you focus on why the women you met did not want to separate from their abusers at all or uh, why they didn't want to file legal complaints at least, right? Um, So could you tell us what some of those reasons were and what kinds of help they sought in brokering some kind of, um, you know, temporary peace at home? Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's a really important question Um, because, you know, the, like the theory of incorporation and capability actually comes towards uh, like the middle of the book, right? So, where the book starts out is with um, what, like the beginning of a claim for women. And there I found that, you know, I was tracking 70 women and um, the overwhelming majority of them uh, did not want to register a legal case. um, And they did not want to separate from their abusers. Um, They wanted to stay with them. So 
uh, I think the question you're asking is like, why, right? Uh, why? Um, and I, you know, there's a couple different reasons for why. One, I, I think it, there is ideology at play, right? Like if you look at um, survey data from the National Family Household Survey, what you'll see is that women in India are more likely than Indian men to think that husbands are justified in beating their wives. They're more likely, like significantly more likely. So there's no reason actually to a priori expect that women will want to leave because, um, and we know this as gender scholars, like gender inequality works through socialization, right? Through like shaping women's internalized expectations and preferences everywhere. And it does so in India as well. Um, So yeah, like there's a lot of internalized stuff going on. Um, Second... There's the fact that for most women, irrespective of, you know, like how they might respond to a survey or what they think, um, leaving a violent relationship is actually more challenging often than staying in it. Um, And so what do I mean by that? Um, Well, this has to do with the world that they inhabit, right, where um, there's like serious constraints on educational opportunities. you know, over the past, like India has always had one of the lowest, um, uh, like part, like labor force participation rates in the world for women. But in the last ten years, it's fallen. It's fallen by like uh, ten percentage points, if I recall correctly. It might be more than that at this point. But you know, just women don't work in this country, which means that like, uh, like who's going to support you? You know, if you leave this relationship, like it's really hard to get a job. Um, and in West Bengal, in both the cities and the villages, it's impossible for single women to find housing. Like nobody will rent to them. Um, there's just like enormous pressure to adjust from natal families, like from your own parents. Um, and, uh, you know, as like, I'm sure you've been, but like everyone is just like obsessed with marriage there, right? Like it's, it's just like constant, like, oh, where's your husband? When are you getting married? Like, how many babies do you want? It's, it's like really freaking obnoxious and so you can you know if you're also up against all of these other challenges like it's not surprising that the what you might want to do is just be like okay i can just like let me just like try to figure out how to make this work you know um so what uh, they really wanted to do was um to uh, run a family uh, and in bangla this is called shongshar jalano um and yeah so they would like every when I met women initially, they were like, nah, like, that's what I want to do. I want to run my family. I just want uh, the abuse to stop or get better. And so what they tried to do uh, to make that happen was they were actually enlisting help from outsiders, right? Um, because, you know, the other thing about this, uh, like, uh, interesting thing about um, this, like, the relationships and the quote-unquote, like, private sphere is that it's not very private, right? So like people are constantly invoking help from outsiders to manage internal problems. And as I explained in the book, it was actually this attempt to gain outside help to stabilize an abusive relationship that uh, ended up further destabilizing those relationships and leading many women towards the law. Relatedly, you, you talk about the organized actors that intervened in these domestic disputes, um, despite many women, again, feeling ambivalent about legal cases. 
But um, interestingly, you show how these diverse organized actors uh, become brokers and um, help the translations of private grievances into legal claims. Mm-hmm. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the networks and the expertise deployed by these brokers in mediating the relationship between the women in the state and how the frictions and differences amongst these diverse set of actors shaped the everyday work of interventions. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of, as you state, one of the empirical puzzles in legal studies literature is this question about how a grievance, like all of our, us are aggrieved all the time, right? About various things, right? So like, how do grievances become claims? And then how do claims become transformed into the language of the law? And so one of the empirical puzzles for me when I was doing this research was that hey, I, like, I've just met a bunch of women, none of whom actually want to run a legal case. Right? So, like, how on earth do they eventually move in that direction? And um, that, uh, like their movement from wanting to run a family to running a legal case was mediated by these people who were brokers, right? Um, and they were a really diverse set of characters. Um, they included like caseworkers at, you know, like NGOs, um, members of Mahila Shamiti, like uh, self-help group members, um, like the dadas at the local club who were like connected to the political party in the region. Um, there were like all sorts of like thugs involved, you know, like, like people who were like, did like thug work for the political party, but also like help out women there were unions um and as you point out the you know a, a lot of these people actually like really disliked other people who <laughs> were also in like they were like i hate that you know like uh, and so so what was intriguing to me is like uh given that they were all so different <laughs> why were they all working in this field um and why did like why did so many of them even when they would just talk for hours about how the law was like stupid and made no sense and how like and also so many of them were clearly not feminists right like they would just like sit around and talk about how like women were like ruining families while also helping ru- women ruin families right? so it's just like what is happening um why, why are these people up to what they're up to and what kinds of effects are they having and so in a forthcoming piece um that's coming out in an edited volume by gauri vijay kumar smitha radhakrishnan i i talk more about these questions in a way it, like that's slightly clearer than in the book um but yeah here you know the main thing I found was that there there is a market for rights, right? That creates a demand for mediation because women can't, they just can't go to the state by themselves. So they have to find these people who like have knowledge, who have contacts, um, who can provide protection, who can tell them what to do. Um, and uh, like all these different kinds of people are involved because um, they profit from these mediations. And by profit, I mean, not just financially, um, but it's also a site where like brokers themselves accrue social, cultural, and symbolic capital, right? So like, Bordeaux really matters for these people. <laughs> so, like, um, yeah, and the, and the interesting thing is that they're not necessarily ideologically committed to rights. Um, 
but they're still motivated because they're getting these other things from doing what they do. And then, so how do they do what they do? Well, here, you know, it really became apparent the degree to which organizations, organizational connections mattered for legal claims. Uh, so people who were actually able to be brokers were always people who had uh, some or multiple kinds of organizational contacts, right? So it's not, there There were never individuals, right? It was like, oh, I'm the local dada, which like means that when I need to, I can get the CPM to, you know, like, like help me out. Um, they had connections to women's organizations, to gangs, to unions. And the reason they had to have these connections was because that's how you got the state to respond, right? You had to demonstrate that you had people behind you who could one, do the work of the law and two, like threaten people, including law enforcement personnel, but also abusers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm just uh, struck by how, how insightful this is about uh, the role of brokers and um, the way they profit off these sorts of connections and, different ways uh, i can't wait to read your um, chapter in uh, in sociology of um, south asia um but yeah so in the final section of the book you trace how um, the women who ran these cases began to perceive themselves and the state um differently right and you conceptualize this changed orientation to the law as an aspirational strategic subjectivity so I want to invite you to tell us a little more about this and how uh, the subjectivity links to the powerful ideal of the capability of women. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I guess just backing up regarding subjectivity, right? What one way of, um, and I would say this way of thinking about subjectivity is quite central to a lot of post-colonial studies. Um, but so that one way of thinking about what happens to people when they interact with the state is to say, okay, look, there's the realm of the state. And then there's like this totally separate realm of everyday life where people are doing something else that is untouched by state regulations. Right. Um, and this is similar to the stories we get from people like Bina Das when she discusses the aftermath of the anti-Sikh riots in India, right? where she shows us that like people in their communities have very different ways of dealing with trauma. Um, and they're not necessarily in dialogue with like state discourses. Um, it's also, I think, similar to how like Ratna Kapoor or Gayatri Spivak theorized the disjuncture between law and citizenship in India, especially around gender, right? We get the sense that, okay, there's the law and most people don't believe or even know about the notion of rights or consent that are embedded in the law. And then there's this realm of like everyday culture where people em- emphasize alternate commitments like responsibility or something, right? Um, and I think, you know, I think that's true for some people, but um, what I found is it's really not true for many. Um, so the aspirational strategic subjectivity that arose in women in my study was um, one that came about through their everyday dealings with the law and legal institutions. And uh, simply put, like what I'm trying to say is that they changed um, over time, right? So they they might have started out being like, uh, like, you know, I want to run a family. But um, through their engagements, they they actually effectively became different kinds of subjects. Um, and the aspirational strategic is a, it's a, it's a curious combination, right? Um, that what 
the legal environment um, produced was this dual and seemingly contradictory approach that combined legal cynicism with a good deal of desire and hope. So this notion like, oh, the law is terrible and doesn't help women, but if I'm able to threaten and gather evidence and manipulate people, then it might work out for me, right? Because like, I actually really do want my jewelry back and I at, like no longer want to live with my abusive in-laws, right? So um, this subjective orientation is what enabled the practice of capability, uh, which also, you know, combined this dual stance of, like, I believe in the promise of rights, but I don't believe I can sit around and wait for things to happen. So I'm going to go out there and make it happen. Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, I also really appreciated how you discussed the limitations of thinking about capability as a model of women's citizenship by addressing the alter ego of capability, right? The woman who was incapable and undeserving. So who were these women? And um, could you speak a little bit more about how that works? Yeah. So, you know, I think on the face of it, like this the idea of capability sounds lovely, you know, like it makes you think of Amartya Sen or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> approach. Um, and it, it sounds better than like being this meek victim or something. Um, and, you know, the book talks about how in many ways it is. Um, like there are certain advantages to this uh, like kind of model of citizenship. Um, but, you know, what I found was that the ability to be capable certainly depended on women's personalities, right? Which might just be like a matter of luck, like how aggressive are you or how like emotionally sturdy are you? But it also significantly varied by social factors, namely their access to social, political, and financial resources. So what's interesting is that there's a way in which you know, women who were relatively privileged, women who lived in a city, those who were educated, were well-connected, had family support, had money, had contacts, they they were much more easily able to, to do the work of the law and to make the system work to their advantage. They were able to be capable, right? Um, so even if, you know, law enforcement personnel weren't picking and choosing good victims at the outset based on social background, which is what existing theories predict, there was a way in which social background mattered a great deal to women's final outcomes uh, because the very outsourcing of justice privileged the privileged. Um, this meant that the incapable woman was disproportionately a woman who was poor um, and uneducated and just, you know, they they simply weren't up to the challenge because the game was rigged for them. Um, So, yeah, as I, you know, as I mentioned in the book, um, this is the way in which capability had direct limitations for women themselves. But um, I do want to say that you know, the other thing I want readers to come away with is the idea that uh, the limitations of capability as a model for women's citizenship doesn't simply have to do with its effects on individual women, right? Um, So what I find is that this discourse has significant overlap with transnational discourses of women's empowerment. Um, 
So discourses that have been shown in both the Indian context and in other parts of the world to, you know, support neoliberal economic policies, right, that abandon poor women and their children to market forces. Um, And uh, capability also, I think, shares features in common with um, responsabilization. um, And what, you know, what we have come to know of as responsabilization is a way of managing crime and social problems by making citizens responsible for their own safety, right? Um, And so I think these strategies... um, and they are governmental strategies deployed by states, let states off the hook. Um, and in the case of what I studied, um, it did, right? Like it sort of, uh, in a weird way, stabilized the authority of these law enforcement personnel because they were seen to like, oh, like they're sort of helping me, right? And if like my case fails, it's probably because I wasn't up to the challenge, you know, <laughs> like, um, And, you know, over time, what this means is that um, the more this kind of thinking uh, gains traction, it hollows out the very idea of rights as universal protections and makes them into privileges available to those who have the might to acquire them. Um, And finally, I would say that one of the dangers of capability is that it creates a negative feedback loop with a very institutional dysfunction that gives rise to it, namely the limited capacity and sovereignty of the criminal justice system, right? That it further destabilizes rule of law by um, further outsourcing regulatory uh, functions to civilians. Um, And in the conclusion, I end with this you know, kind of spectacular, horrific case um, of a a gang, like, rape by this, um, you know, like, this man had been raping women in the slum for years, like a decade. And um, I'll let the readers read it, but, you know, what eventually happens to him when he enters a court of law um, and what that means, right, for um, how we understand the rule of law and justice. You know, thanks a lot for for sharing your thoughts about the book. And uh, I wanted to reiterate how engaging it was to read, even though it was difficult at parts because it's always difficult to read about gender-based violence, of course. Um, But finally, I wanted to shift gears completely and ask you, what are you working on right now to the extent that we can work during a pandemic, of course, but (laughs) (laughs) what can... What writing can we expect from you in the near future? Right. Uh, I mean, maybe nothing because I'm really tough to do anything. I could gather any kind of I know. Uh, you know, it's been a really yeah. tough year. Um, and <laughs> yeah, um, I think, you know, also for quantitative scholars, like it's hard to gather any kind of data, but really hard for uh, ethnographers. Um, so, you know, um, but um the project that I'm working on right now, um, I guess, you know, you could loosely call it like a like a transnational project on sexual harassment or something. So I'm, I'm really just like interested in how um, uh, sexual harassment became an issue people care about in different parts of the world. Um, and so 
I have two streams going currently. One is uh, based in the U.S., um, where, you know, um, among other things, uh, that recent stories of college settlements that have come, right? Like, like it's just insane when you think about how many of these men were just kept around for years, right? Like with so much evidence that they were abusing women, (laughs) so many complaints. And like these universities did nothing for years. So I have this like basic question of like, wow, like how do these institutions like actually absorb so many complaints without doing anything? And then like what shifted? Like what happened? Um, and like, how are we moving in a different direction? So I'm trying to study that in the American context. Um, and then in India, what I'm really um, interested in is the, um, like, why the um, Hindu right seems apparently so concerned about sexual harassment. <laughs> so, um, we've seen a proliferation of policies and laws in a number of Indian states that supposedly target sexual harassment, right? Like um, like anti-Romeo laws and all sorts of things, right? So um, yeah, so I'm, I'm very like, I would like to know why this is a policy platform for the BJP and uh, many of its affiliated organizations and uh, what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. And um, I really hope that you also address the etymology of uh, Romeo. It's so, <laughs> it's just such a thing to roadside Romeo. So I really hope that at least in a footnote, you're able to tell us how this all began. I mean, it, it raises lots of questions immediately, right? Because like, right. originally, wasn't he like part of a consensual relationship? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, which, which might give you a hint about exactly what is going on. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I'm particularly charmed by the alliteration, the roadside Romeo. It almost it makes them seem so benign. It's just very... <laughs> It's very cute. <laughs> yeah, not, not just benign, but like sort of like like lovely, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll encounter a roadside Romeo. Uh, yeah, it's like move away, Tinder and Bumble or whatever. I'll, I'm gonna get myself a roadside Romeo. Like all you need to do is wander the streets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh well, it's, it's a wonderful note to end this lovely conversation on. And thanks again for taking time out. Um, yeah, you know, during this like rather uh, depressing um, time in our lives uh, to have this conversation. But again, congratulations on this book. It's really such an achievement and so thrilling to see it in print and hold it in my hands. It, it feels it, it feels extra special because, like I said earlier, you're one of my most favorite contemporary sociologists. So yeah. it feels like a personal victory almost. Yeah. Aww. Thank you, Sneha. This was a really lovely interview and the questions were fantastic. So thank you for thinking through the book and actually like deeply engaging with it. Yeah. And uh, thanks and take care. Yeah, you too.